This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We are about to tell a shocking story. The central character is a woman called Olya Hercules. She's a cookbook author, and she grew up in Ukraine in the 1980s. And the person telling the story is a voice you may well recognize from previous Gastropod episodes, because B. Wilson is one of our favorite food writers. She's a fan of Olya's writing and recipes. And one night she joined other food writers at Olya's house for dinner. And we kind of got talking, and then suddenly somebody mentioned snacks. And Olya just said, well, I never snack. It's not in my culture. And we all just looked at her. I think our jaws just simultaneously dropped. Like, we're like, never? You never have a snack? Just not not ever? Not a packet of crisps? Not, I mean, sorry, chips to you? Not a rice cake? Not a tortilla chip? Not a protein bar? And she was just like, no, I don't snack. Why would I need to snack? I am as shocked as B must have been at that dinner. No snacks? Not ever? No occasional piece of chocolate in the afternoon? How about some carrots and hummus? Doesn't everybody snack? I mean, isn't this a basic human universal? I'm so glad you asked, Cynthia, because that is exactly what this episode is all about. The snackification of our lives. This, of course, is Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. And this episode, we're getting a bit of the munchies. The big existential question that we're tackling today is whether snacking is good or evil. On the one hand, we've all heard that it's a good thing to nibble on handfuls of nuts and things, sort of graze rather than wait until you're starving and then stuff yourself. But on the other hand, I distinctly recall as a kid being told not to eat between meals so I didn't ruin my appetite. So which is it? Getting to the bottom of this definitely sounds like a gastropod challenge. But there's another existential question. What is a snack? Plato, Confucius, the Dalai Lama, they've all pondered this one, I'm sure. Now it's gastropod's turn. And if that's not enough, we get to the bottom of the Cracker Jack box. Or actually, the Cracker Jack story. Who invented Cracker Jacks? Plus, in this deep dive into snack history, we'll discover what the invention of the Cheeto has to do with creating better animal feed. Our reporting for this episode was supported in part by the Burroughs Welcome Fund to promote science communication and our coverage of biomedical research. But first... Back to the woman who never snacks, Olia Hercules. And the woman who told us her story, Bee Wilson. Bee's most recent book is called The Way We Eat Now. She started to think about the concept of snacking when Olia Hercules told her she doesn't snack now because she never snacked as a kid in the Ukraine. She and her brother would eat a delicious, hearty breakfast, which might include something like buckwheat porridge and maybe some wonderful preserved fruits. And then they'd go to school. And school in those days only lasted for a kind of long morning. And then they'd come home and every day they'd sit down to this huge, ritualized, delicious cooked lunch. And so she said, why would we need a snack? Because they were never hungry and you would just be ruining the wonderful ritual of those delicious shared meals. Alia has since moved to London. B told us Alia said she's not nostalgic for everything. There were a lot of upsides to leaving the Ukraine. That said, she does keep up this way of eating in her family today. She was saying her son, because he goes to a British school and it's completely normal to snack, is constantly saying, where are my breadsticks? Where is my cereal bar? Because that's what all the other mums bring. 
And she will just still say to him, it's not in our culture, it's not what we do. Hearing about Olya's snack-free lifestyle started me down a path of wondering, well, did British people always snack? Or is snacking a new thing? When were snacks invented? But that leads to another question that has to be answered first. What is a snack? That's a great question because it is entirely not simple to answer. I mean, or it's one of those questions which is sort of like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography, right? You know it when you see it. Uh Uh-huh. And that is another of our favorite food writers who has also been on Gastropod multiple times talking about artificial flavors and blue raspberries, the wonderful Nadia Berenstein. And now on to a third repeat Gastropod guest. The band is back. You might remember Barry Popkin from our three-part series on sugar and artificial sweeteners a year and a half ago. He's a world expert in nutrition and obesity, and he's a researcher at the University of North Carolina. A snack is actually not as simple to define as you could imagine. But the way we've defined it over time is something aside from a normal meal. So it could be a morning snack, it could be an afternoon, it could be an early evening, or it could be a very late evening. But aside from the normal two or three meals a day that a person eats. That still seems a little vague to me. Etymologically, According to the Oxford English Dictionary, there's this precursor meaning, this archaic meaning, um, which is uh, basically to snack is to kind of snap your teeth like a dog. In the 1700s, it records a now obsolete meaning um, to share or divide. So the example the OED gives is highwaymen snacking their booty. Oh, I guess this has to be where pirates booty that we're puff snack thing gets its name. Snack some vegetable puff booty with your friends. I'm sure. Though perhaps that wasn't exactly the pirate's booty they were dividing. I mean snacking back in the 1700s. Either way, Nadia says, it's not really until the 1800s that a snack starts to refer to maybe a light meal. But really the popularization of the word snack doesn't occur until the 20th century. And especially until the middle of the 20th century. So it's almost like the word snack kind of emerges to kind of describe or define a category of food or of eating that's already out there, but that doesn't quite have a word to hold it all together yet. The reason that this new category of food all of a sudden needed a word to describe it is because the 20th century is when this kind of food and this kind of eating pattern took off. And That happened for all sorts of other reasons that we're going to explore this episode. So to get back to the definition of a snack, Barry's is really the best we've got. A snack is anything that is not a meal. Which makes a meal anything that's not a snack? My head might actually explode, Cynthia. Does this mean we have to define a meal now? Don't panic, Nikki. We are not going to get into the whole complicated story of what makes a meal a meal and which cultures eat meals when. It's actually pretty complicated and interesting. But what Barry says is that, in general, there is some similarity among cultures, and that's in how many meals people eat in a day. Either three meals or two meals. In agricultural areas, often it was two meals a day. In many low- and middle-income countries, traditionally, But increasingly, globally, we we would say it's a a three-meal-a-day culture. Broadly speaking, that three-meal-a-day structure tends to get pinned down as a society industrializes. For the U.S., that meal formalization happened in the 1800s. In response to all these other social changes like industrialization um, and urbanization and so forth. And along with industrialization and urbanization came the development of the workday. Everything became more scheduled. People went to the factory or the office and they took breaks or came home for meals at specific times. And if the meal becomes more and more kind of formally defined as this site of kind of like middle-class bourgeois family life, of kind of proper healthy eating, of family togetherness. The snack is always, it's kind of like anarchic or riotous counterpart. I like that. Snacks are like the food that refuse to grow up and settle down into mealtimes. But it's not that we haven't eaten between meals before. It stands to reason that there must always have been some kind of informal noshing behavior 
that existed. And you can definitely, you know, find pretzels in antiquity and probably the Mayans were eating tortilla chips. But the the cultural meaning of a snack and with all of the cultural weight that it bears, right, about this this kind of forbidden thing or this thing that's kind of maybe a treat, maybe a guilty pleasure, maybe something to kind of keep you going between meals, that that idea only really comes to exist and that kind of eating occasion only really comes to exist with the sort of formalization of the three square meals in modernity. Nadia's point is that we have always snacked, but we haven't always had snacks. It was just food. It wasn't until the 20th century that the meal and the snack went their separate ways. Some of the earliest snacks in modernity were things that had been noshed on for centuries. Things like pretzels, peanuts, and even apples. They were crunchy, they were handheld, and you could buy them on the street or at ball games or fairs or circus shows. Snacks were for eating in public. One of those snacks of the late 1800s was popcorn, and then something we also still eat today that evolved from popcorn, Cracker Jack. I'm hungry just thinking about it. It's a mixture of caramel and popcorn and peanuts, and it was first introduced by a German immigrant named Frederick Ruckheim at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Cracker Jack was a breakthrough in snack history. Frederick brought his brother Louis over from Germany, and together they patented the recipe, branded their snack... This was no longer plain old caramel corn with nuts. It was Cracker Jack. And then they paid a German scientist to teach them how to wax paper. This was a really important innovation. They waxed the cardboard box and they made a waxed paper lining and this kept moisture out. So the popcorn stayed poppy, nothing got soggy. They said in their ad that it was, quote, fresh, snappy, and as crisp as when newly made. This waxed packaging was really pivotal for the newly emerging snack industry. The kind of emergence of snacks as a food category is sort of inextricable from single-serve packaging, and especially from packaging that is meant to keep things crispy. Frederick Ruckheim and his Cracker Jack were the first on the crunchy snack pack scene, but by the 1930s, this newfangled invention called the potato chip, or crisp if you're not American, was starting to catch on. And just like Cracker Jacks, potato chips also needed to stay crispy. According to kind of, you know, the little bit of digging that I've done into this, there was a woman named Laura Scudder who was a potato chip maker. And every evening she'd have her female employees take home sheets of waxed paper and she'd ask them to iron them into bags. And the next day they would pack these kind of ironed, waxed paper sacks. They'd pack them with potato chips and seal them and then deliver them. So these were kind of like the first individually packed potato chips. Before these individual-sized wax paper bags were invented, you might have had to belly up to your potato chip seller's barrel and they'd scoop some out into either a piece of paper or into your own container that you'd have brought from home, and you'd have to eat them pretty quickly because they wouldn't stay crispy for long. That's if they were even still crispy when you bought them, because a lot of times the chips would have been sitting in that barrel for a while, getting soggier by the day. That's why Frederick Rokheim boasted about his packaging keeping Cracker Jack fresh. Most popcorn for sale at the time wasn't. We are making such a big deal about the packaging because one of the hallmarks of snacks as they started to emerge as a category of food is this crunchy quality. Like the kind of crispness of a potato chip. It's a kind of eating experience that's quite hard to maintain or duplicate. It's actually quite rare. But crispiness kind of became this sought after and maybe like defining textural characteristic of snack foods, which also became associated with psychologically, according to food researchers, with vigor and action and like go get them. That's how I feel when I crunch on a crisp, no doubt. But the packages were good for more than just keeping your chips crispy. Before these individual packages, you had to buy and usually eat your snacks on the street or at the circus or the ball game, as Nikki said. And these snacks were often sold by immigrants or by African-Americans. And so they were considered kind of rowdy and lower class and also, because of racism, kind of unclean. Packaging the snacks meant you could buy them and eat them at home. Waxed paper 
basically domesticated the snack, which made snacks appropriate for women and children and everyone who considered themselves too classy to eat them before. One example of this shift is Mr. Peanut. He's the mascot for Planters Peanuts, and he was first introduced in 1916. Mr. Peanut was classy. He had a monocle. He wasn't a rowdy peanut seller at the baseball field. What all of this means is that by the 1920s and 30s, snacks were for everyone to eat, everywhere. They were exploding. Literally. The invention of the Cheeto had to do with exploding corn. And cattle feed. In the early 1930s, a company in Wisconsin called Flakeall was trying to perfect a method for flaking corn to turn it into animal food so that the cows wouldn't get their mouths cut on the sharp kernels. The grinder worked, but it wasn't great, and it would occasionally get clogged. Flakeall employees tried moistening the corn kernels before putting them in the machine to cut down on the dust that clogged it up. But then something weird happened. As they went through the flaker, these moist corn kernels turned into puffs. One of the employees brought home some of these corn puffs instead of leaving them for the cows, and he seasoned them and he tasted them, and they were damn good. He decided to call them corn curls, both with a K. You know and love corn curls today as Cheetos. And so I hate to break it to you, but that does mean that your Cheetos, and really the entire category of extruded corn snacks, They are actually repurposed cattle feed. So with packaging and corn puffs, now snacks have been invented. The 60s was a huge snack creation decade. Pringles, Chips Ahoy, Doritos, Pop-Tarts, Bugles, Jelly Bellies. Doritos taste as good as they crunch. Try Doritos tortilla chips. One good crunch leads to another. Chips Ahoy, the 16 chip chocolate chip cookie from Nabisco. Delicious cookies. Truly a modern renaissance, the golden age of snacking. Snacking was already becoming important in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s for higher income people and across the income spectrum by the 80s. So that's when snacks truly exploded and when they shifted Between the 70s and the 90s, from being really once or twice a day to up to three times. And then by today, in the the last 20 years, we've seen the increase in people who just seem to be snacking many times a day. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Embracing nature is more than just going for a walk now and then. It's reconnecting with the elements. It's harnessing the power of natural ingredients. It's putting the earth first. For over 50 years, Nature's Sunshine has been sharing the healing power of nature as they work towards a healthier planet. Their manufacturing facility is 100% powered by sunlight, and they divert 95% of waste away from landfills. If you're looking for a sustainably made herbal supplement, you might want to check out Nature Sunshine and their new power line. Power Beats are a superfood performance booster that can help enhance both performance and blood flow. And Power Meal is a satisfying protein-packed superfood shake that comes in sustainable packaging made with nearly 40% post-consumer recycled plastics. Now that's something you can feel good about. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order. When it comes to snacks exploding into the public consciousness, of course, it will come as no surprise to you listeners that America was really the leader and children were the early adopters. It's really only been later that it became a total population shift. And I would say by the 
1990s, every age group was snacking. Greaseproof packaging made the first wave of snacking's rise to glory possible. But Barry is describing a second wave that led to the wholesale snackification of American life. So what led to that second wave? To answer that, we actually have to take a step back in history again. After World War II, the food industry started to wake up to what a great business opportunity snacking had become as its own entire sector. Earlier in the century, snack makers didn't think of themselves as being in the snack sector. They thought of themselves as just making whatever food they made, crackers or popcorn or chips. In the 1930s, the National Potato Chip Association forms, and it has this magazine called The the Potato Chipper, which is actually really great. Every year they have like a Miss Potato Chip, and there's always these kind of like centerfold pictures of Miss Potato Chip. And there's other kind of trade magazines like the Biscuit and Cracker Baker. By the end of the 1960s, and remember, this is right when snacking is about to start to take off in the 70s. By the end of the 60s, these trade magazines had had a consciousness raising, you know, like all those hippies. Biscuit and Cracker Baker becomes Snack Food magazine in 1968. The potato chipper uh, somewhat later becomes Snack World. They weren't biscuit or potato chip makers anymore. They were just one big, happy snack-making family. With this new, expanded mindset, these snack makers set out to share the snack message with the people. Now that snacks had realized who they really were, it was time for all Americans to get on that snack train. If you want to understand how this major cultural shift got going, one good place to look is advertising. Now, any company with a marketing plan has a kind of archetypal consumer. It's the person they have in mind when they're pitching their product. In the 1930s and 40s, when you read food industry trade magazines, the imagined consumer is always Mrs. Housewife. Mrs. Housewife is white and middle class, and she is feeding a husband who has a white-collar job and is grouchy when she doesn't make the food he likes. Mrs. Housewife was, of course, making all the food purchases for the whole household, and she needed things to be nutritious and thrifty and tasty so that Mr. Businessman Husband would be happy with her and their delightful 2.5 children. The ideal or imagined snack food buyer is not Mrs. Housewife. The snack food is kind of a disaggregated individual, a person who's sort of roaming alone and eating alone outside of the boundaries of of the meal, not responsible for making choices to feed anybody else, basically just trying to gratify his or her own senses. So buying a thing that pleases you and you alone. And That shift in sort of imagining what kind of appetites food companies are catering to, I think, makes like a big difference in the way that food and the pleasure of food is sold. Take pleasure seriously. Magnum for pleasure seekers. Packed with peanuts, Snickers really satisfies. Elizabeth Avery is the CEO of Snack International. It's the lobbying group for the Snack Food Association. And she says this is what snacks still mean today. Snacking is all about personal pleasure. I really consider myself a veteran of the of the overall food industry. But, you know, it's easy to be passionate about this category. Um, we bring a lot of joy to consumers. Those consumers include Elizabeth herself. Of them all. But I, I'm a little bit on the nostalgia or otherwise boring side. I like a more traditional snack. I love kettle potato chips. And then I'm always game for trying some of the new mix-ins. I'm looking at some pretzel chips with dark chocolate drizzle on them right now, which I think are a great way to have a treat. Joy, treats, love, pleasure. This is the snack message. And it really fit in with this new, more individualistic way of thinking that swept America in the 60s. People putting their own personal fulfillment and self-expression above traditional social norms in a way that perfectly matched this new snack mindset. And then the time period that Barry said marks the real explosion in snacking, the 70s and 80s, this is when two-income families started to really become the norm in America. It's also the time of the latchkey generation, otherwise known as Gen X. These were kids who let themselves in alone after school and had to fend for themselves for a while. Where fending for yourself meant foraging for snacks. 
And also maybe fighting with your brother about what to watch on TV. And just as snacking was really capturing people's hearts, then along came some supposed science to justify the new obsession. I'll give you a quote from an editorial from Snack Food magazine in, uh, in 1969. Whatever the reason for snacking, the bomb, next month's mortgage payment, today's pace, that big contract... Dietitians tell us that more meals per day is a healthy trend. Oh, I definitely remember hearing and reading this in all my teen magazines. Grazing was the key to a desirable figure and life. A handful of almonds here, a spoonful of cottage cheese there, and Bob's your uncle. Or in American parlance, you're good to go. No uncles necessary. So nowadays, in my very slightly older age... I know it's not a super good idea to rely on the science in teen magazines for nutritional advice or really anything. But was there really research showing that grazing was good for you? There was one study done, only one on this. In Canada, a scholar named Jenkins looked at six meals a day versus three meals a day for a small group of 30 to 40 adults. and he did this trial where he everybody got the same number of calories. So whether you had six or three, you ate the same calories. The group that ate more frequently had slightly better insulin levels. Insulin levels are important to help process sugars in the blood. And if you don't have good insulin levels, it can lead to type 2 diabetes. But it grew into a kind of a mythical thinking on dieting books that If you ate a whole lot of small meals, you could do it. You could lose weight. That's what the teen magazines were promising, and I presume the grown-up ones, too. But first of all, the study didn't have anything to do with weight loss. And it was just a very small study, and it was just one. And those diet plans and diet books that were based on grazing all had something to sell. So there's a lot of linkage of industry into the pushing for that multiple meals a day and grazing effect. And it kind of became something that became quite popular in thinking at one point in the 80s and 90s. We know now that's not quite the case. Barry says that yes, eating small portions regularly might help diabetics with insulin management. But for the rest of us, this Canadian study has no real relevance. Sorry, teen me. There is no science behind the idea that eating lots of little snacks is good for you. But that supposed science made for a good snack marketing tool. And at the same time as this obsession over snacking and grazing was growing, America's waistline was starting to grow too. The snack industry used that one study to present snacking as the solution. But maybe snacking was the problem. Was it just a correlation? Snacking just happened to be on the rise at the same time Americans were gaining weight. Or did snacking in particular lead to weight gain? Was all that grazing actually bad? This is something that Sachin Panda wondered. He's a professor at the Salk Institute and an expert in circadian rhythms. That's basically the body's internal clock. For a long time, scientists thought that clock only existed in our brains. But about a decade ago, Sachin realized lots of other genes also seemed to switch on and off in a time-based pattern, and lots of those genes were involved in metabolism in some way. So it became very clear that just like our brain has a clock, Every organ has its own clock, and that means there is a good time for our body to expect food and to digest it. And there are other times when if we eat, it may not be ideal. Sachin did a bunch of studies to try to figure out if we might be healthier if we only ate during a restricted time period during the day. He did those studies in mice, and the mice who ate only during a certain amount of time, eight hours or 10 hours a day, they were a lot healthier and stronger than the mice who ate the exact same food but ate constantly over the entire 24 hours. This time-restricted eating research really caught on with some people. The results in mice were super exciting, and people started doing intermittent fasting and all sorts. But in fact, a paper from the first decent-sized study in humans just came out last month, and the results were nothing. The control group who ate whenever and the study group who ate only during an eight-hour period ended up looking exactly the same in terms of weight and also insulin levels, caloric intake, everything. So maybe that magical effect in mice doesn't translate directly to humans. 
More research definitely needed. But this episode, we're not interested in whether you should only eat for 8 or 12 hours a day. We're interested in understanding the impact of eating all the time, of snacking. And here's where Sachin's research does have an impact on that. He's been able to describe a handful of clear pathways that flip on and off when you eat. They influence things like insulin and other hormones and enzymes and proteins. This is what's important. And of course, this research is still all in mice. But Barry says we do know that similar sorts of mechanisms are at work in humans. Well, I can't give you all the exact relationships, but we certainly know that there are certain hormonal changes that come when we eat. And as you eat more often, these insulin changes and hormonal changes are constant. So you don't really understand when you need to eat anymore. So that sounds bad, but we checked with Sachin. Are all these changes that happen when we snack good or bad? Yeah, so this is a great question that has been (laughs) bugging nutritionists and scientists for (laughs) decades to snack or not to snack. It has been difficult to study. It's been hard in the past to, say, constantly monitor people's glucose in their blood or acid levels in their stomach. The technology has improved, though, and now people are starting to tease out the impact of frequent eating. So what we're finding slowly is the result is mixed. It depends on the person and the underlying condition. So uh, the bottom line is the jury is still out. Ugh, this is so unsatisfying kind of like a snack rather than a meal. Basically, given what Sachin and others have discovered about the body clock and the digestive system, it does make sense logically that eating constantly versus eating at mealtimes would have an impact. But as yet, we don't have any solid evidence in humans that the timing of eating is what makes snacking a problem for health. So how about the actual snack food itself? Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I mean, if you think about it, a handful of peanuts or an apple as a snack, like people might have had a hundred years ago, those are really pretty qualitatively different than a flaming hot Cheeto or a fruit roll-up, which is what the big snack makers are selling. Apples and oranges went by the wayside by the 70s and 80s. They were pushing away from those to their processed, ready-to-eat highly palatable kinds of foods that they were making with lots of additives, sugar, fat, salt, very tasty kind of items. The new modern snacks often fall into the category that scientists have started to call ultra-processed foods. The term was coined by a Brazilian doctor called Carlos Monteiro. So one of the characteristics of an ultra-processed food is it will contain additives which would not normally be found in a home kitchen. They have lots of chemicals together with some basic staples that make them what we taste and love. They're not really real food. 
So the question scientists have is, do our bodies handle this kind of ultra-processed food differently somehow? Lots of scientists had noticed that populations seemed to gain weight when more processed foods were added to the diet. But it wasn't clear that the ultra-processed foods caused the weight gain. But then last year, everything changed slightly with the science of ultra-processed food because a scientist called Kevin Hall did a really remarkable study where he took 20 people and they agreed to be confined to his hospital for, I think, a period of four weeks. For half the time, they ate 100% fresh, whole food-based diet, and for the other, they ate 100% ultra-processed foods. They were provided full meals no matter what the diet, and they could just eat however much of the meal they wanted. And what Kevin found is, during the two weeks they were eating ultra-processed foods, people felt hungrier, ate more, and gained weight. So this is the first evidence that actually ultra-processed foods, they're not just correlated with weight gain, they actually cause it. The group also had pretty substantial changes for the worse in their blood pressure and blood fat levels and insulin levels too. It's quite shocking to me and to the whole scientific community that works on food and weight, the weight increases. And then the diabetic community, the endocrinologists and the diabetologists and the others were shocked for the increases in insulin, the increases in in lipids in just two weeks. These are really quite significant large effects that have really changed our view of these foods. These foods seem fundamentally different from what we've eaten in the past. These foods are so palatable. The industry has learned how to make you want to eat them. And it's those foods that are the danger. Barry says Kevin has another study underway now to tease out, is it just that people eat more calories when they're eating ultra-processed foods? Or is there also something about how our body digests these ultra-processed foods that makes them different? Barry says we should see the results from that study early next year. Barry thinks it's probably a little bit of both. Maybe our bodies do process them differently. What's clear to him, though, is that these foods have extra calories in them, and they make us want to just keep eating. So again, more calories. In his own research, Barry looked back at the changes in the American diet over the past 50 years to see if he could find any clues, and he found two things. Americans today are eating more calories, and the reason we're eating more calories is mostly because of snacks. We're just eating more often. That seems to be more significant than changes in portion size or even changes in the food we're eating. In the U.S., by the time Barry looked, everything had already happened. He couldn't follow along and try to tease out what was going on. But he got in on the ground when he started doing research in China. Well, it's very interesting because when I went to China, they hadn't heard of the word snack and they didn't snack. But What I found then is income started increasing in the 90s when they opened up the economy that kids were often given like a fruit. So once or twice a week, the average child was given a fruit to consume. And then by 2004, that piece of fruit had become processed foods in packages. It went to multiple times a day. It went up in the proportion of the meals and it became junk food or fast food. And then as Barry watched in real time, weight started to increase in China, especially childhood obesity. Meals weren't getting any bigger or more calorific. The difference was just regularly snacking on processed foods. And it had a huge impact. In 1995, only one in 20 Chinese children was overweight. Now that number is one in five. And Barry says it's not just China that's gotten on the snack train these days. It's everywhere he studied. Brazil, Mexico, India, everywhere. It's absolutely applicable everywhere. And we've seen an explosion tripling every couple of years as we were studying it in the impact, the size of the snacking. And unsurprisingly, food companies are marketing their snacks pretty aggressively in all these new markets. They're really shifting their focus to the rest of the world, to low and middle income countries, to Latin America, to Africa, to Asia, to the Middle East. All these regions are the growth sector for snacking now. If you look at the way that the food industry behaved trying to establish Doritos in Thailand. People in Thailand ate very few ultra-processed snacks compared to people in other middle-income countries such as Mexico. And through a really deliberate campaign, Doritos made sure that they forced themselves into the hearts and minds of Thai consumers. So they were, for a brief while, giving people free mobile phones when they bought a certain number of 
Doritos. A mobile phone for eating Doritos? That seems like a good deal. Really? Seriously? Is that even legal? In India, the marketing technique, which is clever and devious and according to aid workers I spoke to in Mumbai, is already doing a great deal of harm, is they will market absolutely tiny versions of the ultra-processed snack foods so that even a child on a really low income could afford to buy a tiny version and get a taste for it and become familiar with the name and become familiar with the logo. No matter where the food industry advertises snacks, there's a similar message running through. Which is appealing to anyone in this stressful, godforsaken world that we live in, which is go on, treat yourself. You deserve it. Have this delicious packet of extruded salty snacks. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel popular. You're going to feel beautiful. You're going to feel an explosion on your tongue. There's somehow a message of nurture and self-nurture, which is actually obviously completely at odds of what the effects of these foods are going to be on your body. But um, it's it's very, very appealing. And it's very, very good business for the food companies. It is the fastest growing part of the food sector by far. It has been for a decade and its growth is exponential. For several years, our growth as a as a category was double that of the overall food and beverage industry. This is Elizabeth again. She's CEO of Snack International, so she has all the stats on the snack business. Potato chips are the king. Um, they, on an annual basis, they do about $6.4 billion. If you're talking about the macro snack category, that larger category, crackers are about a $7.5 billion industry, and cookies are about $8.6 billion. It's hard to overstate how big the market is. Barry says that in a handful of countries he studied, children are consuming 20 to 25 percent of their entire day's calories from snacks. There's all kinds of market research that says stuff like snacking is now the number one meal occasion in America. Millennials are snacking more than ever, and Gen Z even more than that. And so it seems like this idea of snacks and snacking and snack food has become this sort of dominant way that we eat in the United States. If you look at snack bars or protein bars alone, there were, at the point I was writing the book, around 4,000 different iterations of them for sale in the States, which is just, I mean, it's bizarre. You can't even... The mind doesn't compute that many different snack bars. Of course, for Elizabeth, the snackification of our lives is a good thing. What I think is so remarkable about this category is that you can now find snacks in every single aisle of the grocery store. And one of the ones that's growing the fastest is in the vegetable section where you'll find baked fruit chips and vegetable chips. There's just... um, something for everybody at every time of the day. This is great news for the food industry because snacks are their most profitable sector. Because they're shelf-stable, they can last for a very long time, they're made of extremely cheap ingredients such as refined vegetable oils, refined starches, sugar, salt. And you can give them extraordinary claims, catchy names, they can be heavily advertised. For the food industry, snack foods tick every box. And so the food industry lavishes all its R&D budget on ever newer and even more improved snacks. Nadia says it always has. Snack foods seem to me to be the, the kind of chief beneficiaries of all of these remarkable advances in food technology and sensory science and food science, that they were kind of this new and exciting category of foods where like the newest breakthroughs were being applied. And novelty is this kind of intrinsic part of what it means to eat snacks and make snacks. Novelty like Pringles. It might sound funny to think of Pringles as a novel technological snack advancement, but these chips were a huge breakthrough when they were first released in 1967. Pringles newfangled potato chips. As many chips as in a big bag. Fresh, unbroken. Made a new way. Delicious. Every single Pringles potato chip is the perfect. Yeah, well, Pringles were also really tremendously controversial in the snack manufacturers community 
because Procter & Gamble, the company that made them, marketed them as potato chips. And the potato chip industry was not having any of it because they were not potatoes that were sliced and fried. They were kind of reconstituted potatoes that were extruded and under high heat to, to produce that, you know, wonderful hyperbolic plane shape. Side note, the guy who invented the Pringles tube to keep those wonderful hyperbolic planes in one piece, he was so proud of his invention that he actually had his ashes buried in an actual Pringles tube when he died. No word on which flavor. But burial tubes aside, Pringles continued to market themselves as chips despite the controversy. But the question of flavor, that's another area ripe for creativity. There was one flavorist I talked to a few years ago described potato chips as a blank canvas for flavor innovation, right? It's just sort of like a screen, like a blank screen that you can spray any kind of flavor sensation on because it's sort of this bland, starchy substrate. Whenever I travel, like back in the good old days pre-COVID, the first thing I do is go into a convenience store and check out the local crisp flavors. I love how everywhere has their own, like cucumber flavor in China surprisingly delicious. I think it's an example of how the food industry is so clever at thinking how to adapt their product. On the one hand, their products are very, very homogenous. A potato chip is a potato chip. On the other hand, the flavors that I came across that were being marketed in Ukraine, I've certainly never seen in England, things like crab flavor, red caviar flavor, and even hunting sausage flavor of potato chips. In the UK, where I grew up, we have a nice sideline in roast dinner flavors, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding crisps or roast chicken crisps. But Britain's best crisp flavor is smoky bacon. Or maybe pickled onion. So good stuffed in a cheese sandwich. But potato chips and snacks aren't just ideally adaptable to local taste from country to country. They're also the perfect vehicle for exploring new flavors. Even like kimchi or gochujang, as flavors that you might find in, you know, some potato chips or, or nuts or other toasted crunchy things. There's this way that kind of enjoying these as snacks kind of paves the way for acceptance or for kind of like enjoying them or trying them in other food or eating eating occasions. You know, it's a low threshold to be able to try something that you might never have imagined um, tasting before. And you might like it, you might not, but um, it, it keeps them engaged. This is the potato chip as Trojan horse idea. Like, maybe you've never tried kimchi or seaweed, but it's less intimidating to taste them first in potato chip form. A market researcher who I interviewed a couple of years ago described snacks as this low-risk experience, right? Because you're buying a bag of chips. It's not very expensive, and it's not something that you're kind of counting on to really nourish you. So you can take a risk. And it turns out that all these aspects of snacks that make them great for companies and even for consumers, they're cheap to make, there's a high profit margin, there isn't a big investment from consumer to taste one. Elizabeth says it means they're great for new businesses too. And I think one of the reasons entrepreneurs are are attracted to the category is it's one that uh, business people would refer to as they having lower barriers to entry. Weirdly, Elizabeth told us a lot of that snack innovation and entrepreneurship is happening in a hippie town in the foothills of the Rockies. I refer to Boulder, Colorado as the Silicon Valley of, of the snack industry. I mean, just so many bright entrepreneurs with great ideas for new products starting up. Wait, why Boulder? There are a couple of folks out there who had done very well in the food industry and wanted to start providing funding and mentorship for startups. And that was all happening out in that space. And then it just kept growing from there. You know, it's definitely not exclusively happening there, but it is a hotbed of um, innovation. And speaking of hot, we read that birthday cake was one of the hottest snack flavors of the past few years. I am not sure I could identify a birthday cake flavor other than kind of sugary and slightly vanilla, but okay. Elizabeth specializes in the savory side of things. Definitely. Um, flavors inspired by Latin American cuisine are, are trendy right now. Mole, chimichurri, you know, cayenne, just hot. Hot is always popular. And, and ghost pepper, which is way too hot for me, but is clearly something that has captured consumers' imagination. Those are currently hot. The other hot flavors are derived more from mainland Asia. We're looking at 
Himalayan salt, red curry coconut, sweet chili. Snack industry people like Elizabeth talk a lot about elevating the snack these days. And what that means in part is using elevated flavors like mole and Himalayan salt. Which is really just salt that happens to be a pretty pink. It's elevated salt, Cynthia. But Nadia says this elevation is all about enhanced functionality, too. Snack food companies use all sorts of words to describe the ingredients, even if they don't actually mean anything. Superfood, you know, superfood ingredients, different kinds of like new low-caloric sweeteners. Even things like cricket flour as a kind of environmentally friendly, high-protein additive, they're kind of making their debut into the American food system in our imaginations in snack foods, which are kind of like a place that we're asking to do this work that maybe meals can't to not just sustain us and keep us from boredom and delight our taste buds, but also like make us stronger and better and save the planet. Nadia is being a little tongue-in-cheek here, of course, but at heart she is a snack lover. Or at least she sees the positive side of snacks' inherent flexibility and adventurousness. I think that there's something about the anarchic or undefined quality of snacks that allows us if we accept the challenge, to kind of use it as an opportunity to redefine what we want from food in general. Obviously, snacks are not all bad. But we started this episode with the story of Alia Hercules, the cookbook author originally from the Ukraine, who says she still doesn't snack today in the UK. And Alia is an inspiration for B. Since I met Alia, I suddenly started thinking, do I really need to have snacks? And sometimes I do, and sometimes I get busy, and I can't say, like her, that I have this absolute strict no-stack policy. But I have really, really noticed how wonderful it is when you can somehow, when I was a child, people would use this phrase, work up an appetite, that you could work up an appetite for dinner. It's so wonderful to feel hungry, and then to eat, and then to feel satisfied. A very special thanks this episode to a new Gastropod superfan, someone who's particularly generous in their support of the show. Noella Handley gave her partner Yoshi Creelman a superfan membership for his birthday. Happy birthday, Yoshi, and thank you both. Thanks also to the Burroughs Welcome Fund for their support of science communication and our coverage of biomedical research. Thanks this episode to B. Wilson. You are going to want to read her most recent book, The Way We Eat Now, and we have a link on our website at gastropod.com. Thanks also to Nadia Berenstein, Barry Popkin, Sachin Panda, and Elizabeth Avery. We'll be back in two weeks with the one cure that works for the common hangover. Really, Cynthia? We'll be millionaires. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash youknowreserve to learn more. Celebrate Earth Month this April by harnessing the power of Mother Nature with Nature's Sunshine's new power line. From power greens with over 200 plant-based nutrients to support gut health and foundational nutrition to power beets that can improve performance and blood flow. Not to mention Power Meal, which delivers plant-based calories from Whole Foods to help keep you both energized and feeling satisfied throughout the day. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order.